Our text tonight is from Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Let's read together. These are Christ's words. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, hey, come at once and recline the table? <laughs> Will he not rather say to him, uh, prepare supper for me, uh, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Father, I, 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 ask for, I ask for Holy Spirit power. I, what will we do with these words? What will they mean to us? I pray for Holy Spirit understanding for me as I speak and, and for everybody who hears. And, and I pray these words would go out, your words would go out in ways that would transform, give us hope in the gospel, would bring conviction. Father, forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are many. Forgive the sins of those who hear. They too are great. Reveal unto us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I don't know where I learned it, but I like to think of myself as a Christian with a bad attitude. Anybody want to join me? (laughs) A Christian with a bad attitude. It's a shame that I could say that and I could just be part of the crowd. Like It seems like Christians with a bad attitude are the rule, not the exception in our age. I feel like we're everywhere. And let's hope that our Father will create repentance for his name's sake. What am I talking about that bad attitude? This is my bad attitude. Maybe your bad attitude resembles it. But my bad attitude is like this. I don't like rules. I don't like people telling me what to do. It seems like that's what God's always doing. Or I don't like, uh, I don't get a whole lot of satisfaction or fun out of being good, about being obedient. Or even worse, my attitude even sours more deeply, and I don't feel like it really matters if I'm good or not. Like, it doesn't seem to add up to anything. I heard the grace message, didn't you? And a lot of us wonder if it really makes a difference in the end if we're holy or not. What difference does it make? And I hear, I hear a pericope, I hear a little excerpt, a little, a, little, a little passage like this from the Bible, and it sounds, I don't know, I hear, I hear the need for an attitude adjustment. <laughs> I hear it in this text. That's what this text sounds like to me. It sounds like an attitude adjustment. And, I, and this is one of those texts that I have to say, with reverence for the Word of God, that I neither found comfort or joy in this text. To me, this particular passage from Luke, Seemed to, seemed to aggravate and create a bad attitude I was having. I mean, I thought, these words are hard, they're harsh. Don't, don't they sound hard and a little bit harsh to you? Almost forbidding? Christ suddenly seems kind of indifferent. He, like he's devaluing and dismissing the obedience and servants of his people. And was this supposed to be encouraging? What action or response does it demand? You know what this sounds like more like to me when I read this text? It sounds like a real good stiff rebuke. Like, it's telling me to sit up straight. 
Sit up straight and pay attention. But you know, there's something about that. It misses me. I feel like it doesn't meet me or comfort me in my suffering. But I wanted to share something with you. When the Bible doesn't make sense, or it says something you don't like or you find difficult, I think that's the time to double down. (laughs) Did the window open up? That's the time to double down. That's the time to focus more deeply on these words. For example, these words right here, if they stick in your craw, if you think this doesn't really jive with how I understand Christianity or salvation, or if Christ's words sound mean, this is the time to double down. This is the time to find, to look for meaning. Because in the, in, the, in the most difficult places the Bible speaks, in the way it speaks, in the most difficult things it says, I think, is the juice. I think that's where salvation is. I think that's where all the gravy is. That's where all the good news is. All the great news. What great news am I talking about? The one I talk to you about every week. That God loves sinners. Go with me here. Now, Christ... In this, in, this, in this brief text, does three things with his teaching. Three things which are intentionally, intentionally meant to give you a hard time. Christ makes no bones about this. The first thing he does, the first thing he does is he uses a riddle. Then he does this again and again. He says, he even told his disciples this is a part of his teaching plan. <laughs> I am going to say things, and I'm going to present things in ways that people go, what are you talking about? Like, what are you trying to say, Jesus? What what was the point of this little message here? None of us match up. All right. But the riddle seems deeper. Am I supposed to walk away with this just feeling worthless? Because he told me I was worthless? You know, it's funny. There's this thing, this, this purpose of a riddle is to frustrate you a little bit. But that frustration is meant to bring the satisfaction of understanding, figuring it out. Otherwise, you would just nod your head and act like you understand everything I'm saying. But what a riddle does is a riddle trips up people who think they know it all. Because those are the people who need to be tripped up. Amen? Now, secondly, so first of all, he just presents a riddle. It's really, not really clear. The second thing he does is he's intentionally provocative. Did you hear it? Like, this is a provocative thing. Hey, Spencer, how much you worked today? Guess what? Everything you did, yeah, it's about time you did something. Because everything you did is worthless. Uh, what? This is not a friendly saying. Christ is not making friends here. People are not signing up going, I like this guy. This is, me. This is provocative. It is intentionally meant to be offensive. When you go to a bunch of men, you tell them. If you say something like this, that, hey, you know, um, after you've done everything you're supposed to do, don't get cocky. You're still a nobody. You're still not worth it. You still don't produce anything worthwhile. That's a bit of a wallop of a saying. So Jesus intentionally provokes. He intentionally is obscure. And finally... He is intentionally spiritual. He starts talking. He does this all the time. He starts trucking and using words. You see, he uses this unworthy word, this worthy word, this unprofitable, unworthy word. He First, he uses it 
He's using it in a way we can, we can kind of recognize it, but then there's a gospel way he's using it. There's other meanings underneath that. There's, there's kinds of unworthiness that we have before God that are different. There's kinds of unworthiness that tell us how much we're loved. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. What's my plan of attack today? And my plan of attack today is to... Is to, is, to, is to take this blunt teaching that's to the point and, and kind of boil it down. Christ is beginning with an all-too-human universal. What's the human universal that everybody in this room recognized in Christ's words if you're an intelligent person who's ever worked a job in your life? What's that? Your boss expects you to be his servant and do your best work without complain, complaint or demand. Right? You're... Let's, let's say this again. Christ is using the principle that every culture knows and that it's fair that your boss expects you to be his servant and do your best work without complaint or demand. It's kind of common sense. Like We all know that that's what a good employee is, right? And, and it's funny because Jesus is playing on that. He's playing on a cultural motif. We all know what a good employee looks like. Or what a boss acts like and what an ideal employee for a boss might be like. But beautifully, this is what Christ is doing here. Jesus is saying that God is a boss like that and even more so. And I want to work through these words in three different ways. And these three different ways that these words and ideas take shape in the Bible and in the great news that I want to focus on. First, we have to look at how Christ is like the great teacher of Ecclesiastes. In this little story, in this little moment, by the way, you've noticed, you could, if you wanted to, you can go to the chapter in Luke this is from, and there's a bunch of sayings, in, this is a hymnal, <laughs> go to the chapter this is from, and you'll find it, this particular saying of Jesus is not connected to the context. There's a whole bunch of things that Jesus said that were collected by the early writers. Luke tells us in Luke 1. He says, I collected all these sayings and I'm organizing them. Well, we know some of those sayings were like floaters. They don't really connect to a story or to a, a bunch of teaching. Or, they're just their own little nugget, as it were. This is one of those nuggets. This is one of those nuggets. And as we're unpacking it, the first claim I'm going to make is that Christ is standing with the stature of the great teacher of Ecclesiastes. That's the first thing he's doing. But the second thing he's doing is he's teasing out, he's teasing out for them something that Peter is going to write about later. He's teasing out for them what the nature of grace is. What the nature of true grace is that you never earn your salvation, and you can't. But then, but then there's a third way we can read this text. And this is the precious, this is the beautiful way to read the text. Because there's an irony in the text, like a, like a shining irony. Because I'm an unworthy servant. But get this, I am my Savior's treasure. You get what? The punchline is the flip. It's the reversal. It's the thing you don't expect. It's the thing you can't see coming. God loves sinners. He loves unprofitable sinners. Praise him. 
Praise him. Praise him with highest praise like you should. All right, let's, let's see where we get with this. You know, I, I very rarely ever write a manuscript when I'm preaching. And I wrote one. And I thought I was going to read it, but obviously I am not. Okay, now. When we look at the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God, I notice something important. This teaching here that Christ is talking about is part of a tradition. It's the wisdom tradition. There's a lot of genres in the Bible. There's poetry, there's sermons, there's history. There's, uh, there, there's, there's these prophetic books that declare the will of God. There's historical books that reflect on the works of God. There's the law that declares the will of God. But then there's another genre called the wisdom literature. And wisdom literature doesn't really have an equal in uh, English literature. We don't have a version of it, really. You know, it's funny, there was a little, I don't know if you know this or not, but there was a little time, there was a time in the 18th century where men tried to write, write fables. It's kind of an interesting, if you can look them up, there's a bunch of fables written by people who are trying to write and recreate ancient fables. But this, as wisdom literature, literature of this design, doesn't teach a plot, doesn't teach, it doesn't tell you a story. It invites you into wisdom questions. What are wisdom questions? Well, they're the questions about the paradoxes of life, the, the riddles about getting to confuse you about the world, about what do you do, what do you do in this world when every choice is a sinful one? We have things like this happen to us, don't we? We have to learn wisdom. This is, the, this is in a sense, wisdom is a catch-all of how do you live this life? How do you deal with the existential crisis, the, 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 the drudgery, the difficulty, the futility, the insignificance, the... How do you deal with all this? Well, beautifully and, and instructively and wonderfully, our faith delves deep into this. Wisdom. Often life presents us with a bunch of bad choices. How do you think through these challenges? Often life doesn't make sense and suffering seems to rob us of meaning and hope. How do you live in that circumstance? Wisdom. And what I hear first in our Savior's words is the Sermon of Ecclesiastes. Tim Keller, Keller made a wonderful comment about this. He, he was reflecting on, he wanted to preach through Ecclesiastes, but he never could. Because it's only one message. The entire book is one message over and over. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Do you hear an echo of it in Christ here? I hear it now. Start to hear an echo. Hear an echo of the ancient teaching back to Solomon and the, and the reflection on the reality of existence and the challenges of living in this world? That any, uh, that you will, I'm telling you uh, that, that this, I'm, I'm, I think the scriptures promise this, you will experience the vanity and meaninglessness of life. It's real and it's unavoidable. Death, disintegration, and decay are constant and our hearts are endlessly and hopelessly dissatisfied with everything we try to find meaning in. So what does the greater Ecclesiastes say? So trust God. What else are you going to do? That's Solomon's message. I think Solomon, it's funny, here's Solomon, and he talks, he looks at nature a lot. And I think about modern science, discovering how unimaginably vast and inconceivably ancient the universe is. And we're on the brink, and you listen to these intelligent men looking out across 93 billion light years. You know what that means to them? They don't mean anything. 
This is these intelligent, Roger Penrose is talking, most brilliant, brilliant men living today, talking about how life has no meaning whatsoever. It's not possible. Don't you know that? Look at the vastness of the cosmos. You don't matter. I think Solomon would have been like, right on, man. You nailed it. And our discovery of the vastness and ancient character of the universe is only confirmed, Ecclesiastes. You know what's funny? I almost feel like modern science is a big exclamation point at the end of Ecclesiastes. Because <laughs> it's finally revealing to everybody. You are dust. You are literally a fraction of a second of a fraction of a second in the history of the universe. And you'll be gone. What will we do? What we do before this? Oh, this is where I love Jesus. We, are, we, we, as, we as people, we as, as believers have to wrestle with this truth. God in his love for sinners has chased and pursued us. But we are still in this fallen world and it still affects us deeply. Its miseries and its futility is something you will get a mouthful. You will get a mouthful of dust. You will get a mouthful of dust in this world. And even ketchup won't make it any more palatable. It's that bad. This is, and that, this is what I want, to, I want to kind of encourage you with this, though. Because this is the arrogance of this age. We just watched the We, we Crashed, the WeWork story. I, don't know if you, I can't recommend the, uh, the, the video on, on, the, on, the, on Hulu, whoever's carrying it, because there's lots of sexuality in it and stuff like that. And it's, that's what all these shows do nowadays, right? Whether it's, whether it's relevant to the plot or not. But the story tracks the collapse of WeWork. And, you know, WeWork, they, it was something really clever. You could almost say it was perfect manipulation. Because what they did was they did this, they had these policies. Thank God it's Monday. You know, they, that's what they would say to one another. And the whole idea was to make work exciting. Don't you want to go? Work's the best thing possible. Don't you want? And you know what they were doing when they start saying that? That we love work. We love work. Work's our favorite thing to do. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to reverse the curse. You see, the reason that you experience futility the way you do is because God has cursed this world. He has cursed what you do. He has cursed the making of things and the doing of things and living in this world so that everywhere you go to find fulfillment and to taste, whether it's in relationships and romance and sex and in work, it's all just dust. One more dust, more dust till you want to throw up. It's nothing there. And that's because of the curse. The curse is in its course. and Nobody can stop it. These arrogant men, they think they can do it. They can't. God's not mocked. And they think they can reverse the curse. And what happens? Well, you know what the title of the show was. We crashed. <laughs> That's what happens when you crash in to the power, to the might, and to the curse of God. You know, you know, we hear, and we also have a saying we hear in our culture quite frequently, do what you love and you'll never work another day for the rest of your life. You guys, you guys have heard this? You guys have heard this? Do what you love and you won't work a day for the rest of your life. That's a lie. That isn't true. You know that, don't you? And don't you hate the fact that it's always some smug, wealthy person who's pressing flowers for a living who says it? It just makes you angry. You're like, yeah, sure, it's easy for you to say. You know, you're doing what you love because you can afford to. I don't have a choice. Right? 
Maybe you don't have a choice. But there's a lie in there. There's a conceit. There's an allure. There's a promise. There's a, hey, you can find it. Come find the meaning. You can do it. If you just find what you love, you could beat the curse. No, you can't. No, you can't. So what's the application for this first, first point? What are we to do? And there's two things I want to call your attention to. First thing is, you just need to grow up. We just all need to grow up. I mean, it's Jesus is really, when Jesus has this conversation with his disciples, you know what this is. This is a put on your big boy pants conversation. <laughs> That's what this is. This is a put on your big boy pants. Because what, all these men are going to face death, hatred, destruction, rejection, ignominity, defeat, failure, and hatred. That's where, that's where they're headed, right? Jesus knows that's where they're headed. They're headed into a hard storm of persecution and a real difficulty of life. So Christ is preparing them right up front. He's giving them the big boy talk. Life is hard. Anybody telling you something different is selling you something. Everyone's got something they want to sell you. Life is hard. The scriptures acknowledge this. Christ is telling us. And, and, and I, I don't know, something about this kind of helps me. I mean, you know... He's even, look, it's so funny. Jesus is so specific. He actually gives us a script. He says, say this. We're just unworthy. Sir. This is your script through life. This is how you protect yourself against the futility you find in your work. Say this. I suck. <laughs> I'm unworthy. I just did what I was supposed to do. And nothing more. It's a grow-up moment for all of us. But there's something a little bit more here, too. But I think we can learn also to do all things to the glory of God. You guys know 1 Corinthians 10? That whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That should be, I guess I can't advocate tattoos, but gosh, if you're going to, put it everywhere if you need to. Memorize it, it should be easy. Whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Because what's the message? Even in your futility, God is beckoning you. Do you know why God makes your work futile, Spencer? To teach you. To set your eyes on him. Why, well, why, are, why, are you, why does everything taste like dust? Well, that's God's mercies. Training, teaching, encouraging, pulling, drawing you away from what's empty. Drawing, getting your eyes off of all the futility around you and all the folly we fall into. And, and God is whispering. And all the futility you feel is the message of his grace. Like, come, come on, I'm trying to teach you. None of that stuff's worth it. Yeah, I know you're going to want to do it again. Go, I know, but as you taste futility, hear the beckoning of our Savior. I know. I know it's all going to feel worthless sometimes. Come to me. I don't know. There's something beautiful about that. Something gorgeous. And so I, this is my first, my first argument. The saying stands in line with wisdom literature, and that Jesus actually quotes Proverbs so frequently, it's, it's often uh, remarked on by New Testament theologians, and we barely read Proverbs at all. We should tip us off to its value, but that's not enough. You know, it's funny. Even everything I just said today, do you know you could hear it? Somewhere else. You could hear it from a pagan. Everything I've, said today, everything I've said so far is pretty much common sense wisdom. I don't think anything special about anything I just said. I mean, sure, it has a wrinkle of the Bible on it, but it doesn't really, it's not new, it's not fresh, it's not powerful. There's more here. There's more here that we need. And what is it that we need? What do we so need? 
we need the work of conviction. This word unworthy, uh, it, you know, it, it's translated unworthy right there, isn't it? Yeah, it's unworthy servants. And I think in the, and one of the translations is unprofitable. You've heard it translated that way, unprofitable servants. Now, I think this unworthy word and the unprofitable word are pretty valuable because they give us an angle on Jesus loving sinners. I'm always telling you that the greatest news I have to tell you is Jesus loves sinners. But rarely does anybody seem to jump out of their seat with excitement when I say it. And I think one of the reasons why is we, we don't flesh out the sinner bit of it, right? We don't flesh it out so it has conviction for us. We hear, that, we hear that Jesus loves sinners, and that sounds like a wonderful sentiment to encourage us and maybe help us go to sleep at night. But what does it really mean? And this is where words like unworthy and unprofitable are very helpful. Because now all of a sudden, I can take the message of the gospel, God loves sinners, and I can put that in there. I go, well, you know what the great message of the gospel is? God loves what's worthless. Praise him. <laughs> oh wait, you know what the message of the gospel? God loves what gives him no benefit or profit or ROI or return on investment. Praise him. <laughs> like that's, all of a sudden you have a, you have a different view on what that, that claim is now and the depths of what that love is. <laughs> even as we pull that, even as we kind of open it up, even as we attempt to understand it, it's something, we need the work of conviction. I'm hoping that these words of unprofitable and, and unworthy are the, are the words that begin to itch at your heart. They begin to communicate to you again, well, wait a second, what is it that God wants me to say about myself? What does God want me to say about myself? And, and I don't know if you see where this is heading. This is totally against everything in our culture. Because what is the script you're supposed to say, Corey? Jesus just told you. What are you supposed to say? I am an unworthy servant. All I did was my duty. We need the work of conviction. I had this image. Because I think we think of ourselves basically in a very good way. I had this picture, and I, I wanted to write it out as a story even, but I didn't write it down. I just had this picture that God had asked you to write down every debt, every, every liability, every debt, every asset, every liability, every expense, and every income. You write them all down. Usually you write your expenses and your liabilities in what color? You write them down in red, right? That's all accountants, they keep track of the liabilities and the expenses by coloring them in red. And what do you do with the income? What color is the income? What color are the assets, all the stuff you have? They're all in black, they're all in black, they're all in black. Yeah. Black and red, right? And I had this picture. I was sitting at my desk and wanting to write down good things. Just wanting to write down and picking up all the black pens I could find on my desk in my life and wanting to write down what I thought I had done. Where are my black pens? Where are my black pens? And as I'm writing, I had this image that everything I write down is coming out in red. No matter what I do. That is us trying to be good. Our best works are liabilities. 
What should you say? Here's the script. Christ has coached you. What are you supposed to say? I'm unworthy. And here, here all of a sudden now, we're no longer just simply, we're no longer before the grandness of the universe and the great and awesome God who made it, wondering how we fit in and the insignificance of it all. Now, all of a sudden, things have shifted and things have changed. And now we've moved towards something completely different. And we realize that Christ is now suggesting the abundance of love for sinners is what he's talking about right here. Like it, it's like he is crazed with love for that which does not love him. What a God! There's something happening in this text. It's just, it's so, there's such grandeur and majesty to his love. But anyway, it's just, as we keep going here, I, I just love this. I, 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 anyway, I'm, I'm hoping to introduce you to the power of negative, negative thinking. You know, don't, uh, what is Jesus telling his disciples and us? We should completely despair of ever, of every, ever turning a prophet, of gaining a blessing, or of earning a position, of accomplishing heaven or peace or meaning apart from Christ. Because what did he say again and again? Without me, you can do nothing. Are you ready to tell God you're nothing? You have nothing. Are you ready to believe what the Scripture says and what Christ tells his disciples? One of my favorite stories told by Donald Barnhouse is the story of a man who was in charge of the China Inland Mission in, uh, around 1910. He tells the story of these guys at a conference. One was Bishop Newell. And, and the reason it's kind of relevant to me is I had a map when I was a kid. I was given a map by this, this, this pastor gave me a map. It was made in 1911. It was on linen. It was a linen map. Have you ever seen a linen map? It's really cool. And it was, about the, it was a map of the China Inland Mission. And, and it had underlined in red every place all across China where there were churches in 1911. And guess what? There were churches all across. It's flooded. It's kind of amazing. They were at a conference. And the speaker took Bishop Newell's side and said, we need to pray together, brother. And will you pray for me? I need you to pray for me. Pray that I would become nothing in the preaching of the gospel. Bishop Newell he shook his head and said, Dear brother, don't you know, you can take that one on faith. You are nothing. Amen. You can take it on faith. You are nothing. Praise him. <laughs> Praise him. Praise him. There's a, there's a, there, he is inviting his disciples to despair of earning their salvation. He's inviting his disciples to gaze upon the cross where he's a sacrifice for sin. He's inviting his disciples to ever and only trust in the blood. He's inviting his disciples to never countenance themselves as holy, and that's why they tell us everything they did. You know, they never, they never, they never pose. They never pretend. They tell us about their flaws. Why? Because they know that they were saved because they knew they were unworthy servants. Praise him. Oh my goodness, the entry into joy and glory is right here in front of us. And this culture forbids you from having negative thinking, right? Oh, that's the worst thing you can do. And we as the church join this generation. A lot of us, we, and look, in most of our churches, we have dewormed our theology. We've dewormed it. You know, they give me drugs for my dog. So he's like, it worms, right? Kind of gross, right? Intestinal worms, heartworms. Dogs are gross. They're disgusting. They're disgusting creatures. They get worms. But somehow, you know, and it's good to deworm your dog. 
But it's not good to deworm Christians. And it's not good to deworm your theology. It's the only place where entrance into glory and grace makes any sense. I am nothing. And I am loved. And I am loved. <laughs> God loves sinners. <laughs> Why do you think I'm still preaching after all these years? <laughs> I wouldn't dare even get up here if that were not true. God loves sinners. Praise him. And I want to go to the last and the, probably the most precious part of this. Because this, this, this point where we declare that we have nothing or we are nothing, and we know it, it's the entry point of our salvation. It's where, it's where Christ and his rescue and his sacrifice for sin makes so much sense. I'm loved. But there's something still better. Because the text is floating in the irony. And this is, where, this is where I think we always kind of miss it. I know I always miss it. And we just never catch him in all his majesty. Ooh, who's talking? Who's, who's sitting there talking to him? You know what you should say? Who's, who's saying that? Didn't, didn't he dwell in unapproachable light, world without end, from eternity, from eternity, eternity past? Praise him. Don't a million angels fall at his feet every time he walks by? Didn't he speak and worlds came into existence? Hurricanes, kings, flies, roaches, and galaxies. They do what he says. He is the king of kings. And he just told them, the only way to stand in front of me, and the only way to come to me, and the only way to know me, and the only way to, you have to say this. You're not worthy. Because this is what he's giving. You are his treasure. See, the, the, when he says you're not worthy, you know what comes back to me? You know, when he says you guys are not worthy, you know what I hear? I hear the worship of heaven. I hear what they're all saying. What are they all saying? What can they say when they behold our Savior? What will you say? He is worthy. Even people who don't believe will stand there and go, He is worthy because they can't help it. And you know what they'll say? Because it, it, it continues it. He is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. You know when I get down to this, this last bit where Jesus says you're unworthy servants? You know what I'm worried about, really worried about? It's Christians who have walked with God for a long time. I'm talking about the cold, cynical Christians I meet here in San Francisco. The Christians that aren't expecting God to do anything. Are you, are you, are you drifting in that direction? Because it feels like the church is. I worry, I worry. Worry about this. It's like a, a hardness. Because there's a part of my heart, like I'm a desperately, desperately wicked man. And I know one of the ways I read this text is a part of my heart that just gets angry. I'm just unworthy. Well, why does it matter? 
I don't want to be good anymore. There's a part of our heart, that, that, an evil part of us, that wants to say things like that, right? We want to go, well, I'm justified then. I can do as I please. And I think there are Christians who, that's exactly the conclusion they come to. They're not out there just to be really, really wicked anymore, but you're not going to get too excited about what God's going to do either. Because in the end, what, what I do just doesn't matter. I think Christians get to that point where they feel that. Haven't you ever felt like that? Has anybody in this room ever felt like this? What's Jesus telling you here? That, that feeling is a legitimate feeling for you. <laughs> you don't matter. But you matter to me. Why is he telling us this? Don't you realize that only somebody who loves you talks to you like this? <laughs> He's the offer of love from eternity. He is it. He's saying, come to me. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to tell you the futility of your life. I love you enough to tell you you can't earn a place before me in glory. I love you enough to tell you this one thing you'll never understand until you see me face to face. You are the treasure of my heart. <gasps> I thought, I'm so unworthy. What an amazing God I worship. He treasures. I mean, does anybody feel like a treasure here tonight? Does anybody feel like a treasure here tonight? You should. Because Jesus treasured you. That's amazing. So what happens here at the end? Well, we're good because we're a people of joy. You have to, do, you, do, you, do you need to motivate me to want to do things for my God when he loves me and I'm a treasure and I couldn't stand him and he loved me? And he chased me and pursued me and loved me despite how I ran and hated and rejected. And, and, I, and he's proved love over. He's proved faithful love for me against faithful love despite my wicked heart and all the excuses I want to make. He loves me still. <sighs> Praise him. Because um, I think what happens, it's funny. You would think that, that when Jesus says to, to us, that, like you're just an unworthy servant, that that would be the word we just kind of go, okay, we're hosed. What does it matter? But not when you realize he's worthy. Not when you get your eyes on his beauty and his love. No. That's what I'm praying will happen with us. In 1727, something happened in history that's never happened before or since. And that was the beginning of a hundred-year-long prayer meeting. A prayer meeting lasted 100 years. It created the entire modern missionary movement. Just one group, the Herrenhut Revivals in Germany. This is what the culmination of that. Culmination of that. Two young men had heard that there was an island in uh, St. Thomas in the Caribbean. And today St. Thomas is a wonderland of relaxation and vacationing. But that was not originally. It was a sugar plantation. Run, by slave, run, run, by, run on slavery. 
And the slave owners at St. Thomas would not let missionaries on the island because they didn't want anybody to mess up their workforce. So these two young boys sold themselves into slavery. They were never heard from again. They sold themselves in slavery to those slave owners so they could go to that island and share the gospel with those people. And do you, and do you know what they said as the boat was pulling away from the dock? It's, it's recorded. It's very famous. He is worthy. He is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. That was enough for them. That was enough for them to give all their obedience to, to death, right? And they were sure. They were absolutely sure. They were completely unworthy. Sir. Only people that sure could overdo that. <laughs> Only people animated by God's love in them could ever be those kinds of people. Praise him. Let's pray. Father. Oh, Father, I... What are we going to do if you don't work in us? What are we going to do? Uh, we do. Well, hope what we have. I, I just, I feel like I've, I've tasted so much futility already in life. And, it just doesn't, and I've seen these bad attitudes in my heart, Father, and I confess them, and I ask to re, that you would cause me to repent and cause us all to repent. We repent of thinking anything we have done was worth anything to you. And we repent of ever doubting that you love and treasure your people like you do. Oh, what a Savior. What a God. Will you help conviction and rejoicing? And Will you help us experience these things fresh and new and powerful by the presence of the Holy Spirit, Father? Will you do things we can't do? Will you renew, to renew in us and for us our great joy and grace? Like, it's just how amazed we are by it. We pray for that rejoicing tonight. I pray for new faith, a new joy, new confidence, new, yeah, new meaning in you. We thank you for your, your love for sinners and unworthy servants. In the name of Jesus. Amen.